Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your co-host, Brandon Saxton. And your other co-host, Katie Gordon. It's a little little earlier than we normally record, I guess. <laughs> a little bit choppy for me this morning. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about today's episode. How are you doing? Uh, also really good. Uh, really excited to... Always excited to be behind the mic, you mm-hmm. know? Just getting that, that content out there and... and uh, really just can't can't really put into words how excited i am about our guest today or or the topic too uh which is one that's certainly as listeners of the show know near and dear to my heart yes and quite literally because of yep, your tattoo that's true I, I don't know if we've ever talked about that on the show but i i do have a batman tattoo right on my chest it's true so it very literally is just an inch from my heart this topic <laughs> yes so Shall we introduce our guest? Let's do it. Okay, so today we're very lucky to have Randolph Bricky, who wrote a really beautiful and moving piece about Batman, which we'll be talking more about in a moment. But to introduce him, Randolph is a writer, a recovering attorney, a struggling internet personality, and a former public defender. And in the spirit of Batman and detective work, I did some of my own detective work to figure out how I started following Randolph on Twitter because which everyone should follow him on Twitter because he is really a great person to follow his handle is at hitherto4 which we'll link to in the in the show notes and so using the Twitter advanced search i searched both of our names and traced it back to a tweet by Jesse Single from June 8th 2018 where it says follow Randolph funny and angry, fangry, <laughs> and genuinely clever politics stuff. And then at Dr. Catherine Gordon, really interesting psych, including suicide and eating disorders, S, team train, data sleuthery, and then at Jesse Single, for train wreck purposes, single worst account on here. <laughs> so thanks to Jesse for connecting us, and welcome, Randolph. How are you doing today? Oh, just fine. Thank you for having me. So maybe I'll... St- start just by talking a little bit about my experiences kind of watching Batman the animated series which is kind of the what prompted um what prompted this this conversation that I'm really excited to have which is an article that Randolph wrote um talking about kind of his background and watching the show and kind of how the character has been changed uh throughout time which is kind of going to be the basis of our conversation so um as I've mentioned on the show many times, and and to everyone who who knows me personally, of course, Batman, a huge, uh, I'm a huge Batman fan. Uh, think and talk and and read a lot of Batman content and 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 consume it. So, I I started watching Batman the animated series when I was really uh, quite young as well, and um, it it's 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 such a great show. I mean, even still as an adult, it's pretty amazing. It actually holds up really really incredibly well. Um, uh, the episodes are so so well done in terms of of the depiction of the characters, um, in terms of how things kind of look. It's really just a great show, and so yeah, I don't know. I I think 
it's certainly I, one maybe even interesting piece about it is um, being a Batman fan. People always ask me, well, who is your favorite Batman? And I always say Kevin Conroy and they <laughs> kind of look at me puzzled like, who, what? Who's that? That don't you mean don't you mean Christian Bale? Don't you mean Adam West? And no, no, Kevin Conroy is my favorite Batman. That's that's the Batman that I that I think of when I kind of think about the character and how how I. Um, you know, in the mini renditions, and and that's just the character who I think of when I'm thinking of Batman. So, yeah, it's a, it's an important show for me, and and one that I definitely grew up grew up watching and enjoying, and still do to this day. Yeah, and I it's interesting because Randolph, in the article you described, kind of, I think coming home from school and watching the series, which sounded like something that Brandon had told me. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your experiences watching uh, Batman the animated series? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was kind of a latchkey kid, and I think right at the same age range that Brandon was when he watched the show. I'm thinking like, you know, first, second, third grade. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, when I came home from school, I would come home, you know, just in time to get Batman on the, the sort of afternoon matinee cartoon run. And I, I remember there would be the Batman and then there'd be Freakazoid and Animaniacs, like one after the other. And, uh, gosh, I was, what really got me back to thinking about, you know, watching that show as a kid was thinking about where my ethics and ideology are right now as an adult and realizing, just going back and looking at an old episode, just how much that show was instructive towards my very basic bare-bones moral framework. But it was pretty much part of the life, far more important than school, obviously, uh, when I was that age, where, you know, you would have to get home quickly enough to watch the Batman. If you missed the Batman, you know, this was before the internet, before all the streaming services. If you missed an episode of Batman, there was no telling whether or not you'd ever have the chance to see the episode of Batman again. Oh, and I'd also like to echo, uh, it is amazing the work that Kevin Conroy does with those two characters, and they are two different characters of Bruce Wayne and Batman, where he just pitches his voice slightly differently and just becomes a completely different person, and yet they're both recognizably still the same person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, It's... It it really is. I mean, an iconic kind of voice. I think that that Kevin Conroy Batman. That it's it's really high quality kind of work. I, it's it's amazing. I think. Yeah. Oh, it, it's classic in the old radio series sense. Yeah, very the shadow. Mm hmm. Absolutely. I didn't watch Batman growing up, but Brandon, I think a few years ago, sent me a YouTube clip of Mark Hamill doing the Joker mm. to show how much he gets into it physically, despite, of course, you can only hear the audio. And I was just amazed at how much they put into this. And like you said, it does seem like one of those old radio plays or performances mm. or something like that. I was wondering, you mentioned about seeing some of the foundations of your morality kind of connected with what you saw in Batman. Would you mind giving us an example or two of what you mean by that? Well, when you watch, for example, uh, some of the more redemptive arc episodes of that series, and there are a, a whole, I don't want to say it's like a subgenre within the show where they deal with the attempts at rehabilitation for the various villain characters. And some of them are successful rehabilitations relative to, you know, the reality of how crazy Gotham is, and some of them are tragically unsuccessful. But what I, I see more than anything in myself is that when those rehabilitations are unsuccessful, they're not presented as though, you know, a bad guy going to form or a villain continuing to be a villain because there's something essential about villainy in that person's character. But rather, they're presented in the larger context of just how tragic it is, for example, that Poison Ivy can't find a way to bring 
her ethics and her morality into the world that doesn't result in something terrible happening. And that's something that I used to see very much doing criminal defense work is that, you you know, when somebody fails, when somebody slips up, you will occasionally see really bad actors and bad characters, you know, highly cynical prosecutors who seem to really take some kind of perverse joy in that as though as though confirming their cynicism were better than something good happening. But, you know, for everybody else, us normal people out in the world, it, there is an enormous tragedy in that level of failure. And I, I, that was something that really preoccupied me doing that work. And then, you know, just like a few months ago on a more on a lark than anything else, I went and watched an old episode of Batman on YouTube. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's that's me right there. And you have to wonder, it's like to the extent where did Batman raise me? Because it is such a perfect echo of that same feeling. And except, you know, in the Batman, it's about a, a woman who creates a plant monster that eats her rehabilitation. I think that's really interesting what you just said about kind of being motivated by your own cynicism to confirm your feelings rather than the work of maybe stepping back and looking at the many complex situational factors that might have led someone down the wrong road. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What do you think makes that difference between someone who will face the complexity versus someone who's just trying to confirm that, yeah, these are there are bad people and good people kind of situation? Well, I mean, just to link it back to Batman, I, I think it, it is very similar to the way a Batman villain operates versus the way that a Batman operates. Because the Batman villain, you know, he wears his, you know, frozen ice armor or his, you know, clown makeup. And it is a self-defensive act. At the end of the day, what really terrifies the Joker is the idea that there is some meaning to the universe that he's missed. And to... To sort of give up on the idea that the world can be better than, you know, the random flip of a coin or, you know, that there could be any nobility in human society that shouldn't just be eaten by a plant monster. That requires you to expose a level of vulnerability that these these villainous characters are ultimately afraid to do. Their their greatest fear is to give up that vulnerability and to engage with society, suffering the, you know, the, the very real danger that they'll get hurt again because they are all people who have been hurt. So when I, I see that, for example, in a prosecutor who is not an evil or a bad person and certainly not the Joker, uh, these are often people who've been doing that work for about a decade or two and who have seen so many people go astray that they are at that point just afraid to believe that something could get better. And a lot of part of that, too, is the fact that they only see a case come back to them when something bad happens. You know, when somebody does well on probation, of course, they never see that person again. So it sounds like... There are a couple of psychological factors in there, confirmation bias, what you're seeing, and the vulnerability, which I can certainly, I think a lot of people can relate to that. There's sometimes it's viewed as though cynicism is that you're more clever or more in touch with reality versus someone who's feeling kind of um, willing to be vulnerable and, and take a leap of faith and trust that someone really meant well when they didn't or that there's some good to hope for. And so it's pretty amazing that's depicted in a cartoon. Yeah. I wanted to read this quote from your article in Ordinary Times because I thought it really captures what we were talking about. Batman the Animated Series presents a compelling, humane treatment of a superhero who was above all else a humanitarian. The ass-kicking was secondary. Great, but secondary. Batman was a detective and yes, a slightly superhuman ninja with vaguely magical techno gadgets. However, his principal study was neither crime nor vengeance but the vagaries of the human condition. 
His enemy was what corrupted people, what led them down a bad path. He was an obsessive redeemer. So I'm wondering if um, you and maybe Brandon could talk a little bit about what that means to you. You, Randolph, included, I think, one of the really iconic uh, examples in your article. So if you if you don't mind me mind me leaning on that one a little bit as as such a powerful example is is one of of several where where Harley is is released mm-hmm. from Arkham and. And, uh, you know, she really is giving it kind of this honest effort to to try to, you know, do things right. Um, but kind of through a, a whole bunch of, of happenstance, she gets caught up and in, in kind of put into the system again because of her criminality. And so th- that's an episode where Batman really works to kind of not defeat her, but to kind of save her from this situation and, and all these factors that are outside of her control, despite her giving this honest effort to try to do things a little bit differently. And, and this is, I think is maybe one of the most iconic moments or lines from the whole series is where he kind of recognizes and, and empathizes with her by saying, you know, I had a bad day once too, um, as to the reason that, that he really went above and beyond to try to help her and, and uh, kind of using his, his past to to engage or to perspective take with her so i think that's one really good example and, and there are there are certainly a number of them i think where in in done in such a masterful way a number of examples where he's trying to help uh redeem people and sees these uh these criminals as not as irredeemable um but tries to recognize what what can he do differently or what he, can he contribute to try to help help them change or help them turn a new leaf and you certainly, as you wrote so well in the article, you don't see that. Um, certainly not in the movies. That's it's a lot different. And and I think even it's not always as well done in the comics. Depending on who the author is or who the run is, that there's a variance in that and how the character is depicted. But it certainly stands out in my mind, or those moments stand out in my mind. I'm thinking of even one specific example from the comics where Batman actually leaves, a, I think it's a, a Thanksgiving dinner kind of near the sewers for Killer Croc because he, he just doesn't <laughs> want it. No one should be alone for Thanksgiving, he says, so he kind of leaves his plate there for him. And so even just little things like that that I think are just a, a, such a different way of thinking about the character, um, but such an important way of thinking about the character. And of course, they managed to to have this human streak running through the series without compromising on any level uh, with the the ass kicking, as it were. Right. The action in that series holds up so well for an early '90s cartoon show. I, I think, in large part, because of the incredible color choice and use of shadow. I mean, the motion is so clear and smooth. So, I think it is important to mention too that one does not have to sacrifice ass kicking in their superheroes to mm. have those superheroes actually be heroic as well as super. Yeah, no, I think that's such a good point. It's it's this uh, really, I think, a really nuanced and complex depiction of of a lot of the characters, but of Batman specifically, where uh, you know he's. I'm thinking a, a little bit more of um, maybe even Batman versus Superman, which I generally is. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty much everything in that movie was Batman just punching or or shooting, I guess, and it makes you kind of think of the the like if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, mm-hmm. and he was a hammer mm-hmm. in that movie. Uh, that was that was the approach. Uh, it was hurt, and so I think it's such a a departure from what is depicted or how Batman is depicted in this show, where he really has more of a, a much just a, such a multifaceted character who will recognize different approaches or recognize his role in things or recognize that 
sometimes there are factors outside of people's control or systemic factors that pull people into these situations that, you know, on the surface, yeah, it's easy to just blame the person, but he takes a little bit broader approach, I guess. Yeah, for him, violence was one of his tools, but it was kind of the least important of his tools. And, you know, the show also made a point of showing him doing an awful lot of basic forensic detective work and, you know, just trying to sort out the motivations for crimes, trying to, you know, taking fingerprints and such. But violence was just something that would occasionally happen because of the continuing existence of thugs, you know, of the, of the generic goon thugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the violence was the thing that he would whip out to deal with them. But for everything else in the world that wasn't those guys, it was never violence. I mean, I don't I don't know that he ever actually even hit Harley Quinn at any moment. It would kind of just the idea of Batman beating up Harley Quinn is so antithetical to the concept of that show. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, very different, for sure. I, I think it, it wouldn't be a, a consistent characterization um, just in terms of the the conceptualization that Batman has as a character of these other individ- individuals um, that he interacts with regularly. I remember too, there was a, uh, gosh, uh, one of the goofier villains was a, a sort of ventriloquist act mm-hmm. where a literal ventriloquist act where his, you know, evil possessed dummy was the crime boss that manipulated this poor, frankly, psychotic man. He was very nebbish, very withdrawn, but you know, that little, ventriloquist doll would motivate him to do horrible things and there was an episode too where that guy was trying to get back on the straight and narrow Mm -hmm. and not only was the you know the demonic voice of the ventriloquist you know i mean in classic twilight zone manner you know trying to compel him back to crime but his goons kidnapped him to try to compel him back to crime Mm -hmm. as well and the entire thrust of that episode was to separate that vulnerable exploited man from his own goons who were literally trying to use him to rob a bank as i recall yeah, that that episode stands out in my mind too. I, I think another piece about that episode that was really cool is as I, I'm forgetting that that guy's name who kind of operates the the ventriloquist dummy, but Bruce Wayne employs him even. So it's even mm-hmm. outside of his role as Batman. He he I think he has some sort of rehabilitation program that where he employs this person and and even maybe coordinates or provides him with some kind of housing if I'm remembering. Uh, right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of cool how he it's very much it's not just Batman punching, even as Bruce Wayne, he's taking a role and keeping and he I think he intentionally just trying to keep an eye on this guy because he knows that he's vulnerable because of maybe some predisposition to, to some mental health things or some vulnerability or susceptibility to to being persuaded or pulled into that. So I, I think that's just another really cool example of how he takes this multidimensional approach to really try to help specific individuals improve in a really intentional and in a very compassionate kind of way. It also is an example, too, of the difference between the Bruce Wayne characters, uh, you know, in those Nolan movies and other depictions of Batman, where he actually lives both sides of his double life towards his goal, as you know, as opposed to the uh, Christian Bale character, who's Bruce Wayne pretending to be, you know, a, a you know, dissolute, dilettante, fancy man, but as though he had to do that to prevent people from realizing that he's also secretly a ninja vigilante. But, you know, the the Bruce Wayne of the animated series is very much just Batman as well. He uses what he has, which, of course, is a multi-billion dollar industry, to find ways to engage with society in a helpful manner. Yeah, I, I think that's it's it's definitely another example. I, I'm doing these comparisons in my mind now of even, like, in the Nolan films with Bruce Wayne falling into the fountain at the restaurant uh. and and having this uh, article about 
taking the whole ballet off onto a, a ship or whatever. And it very much is a, a dip, or even I guess in Batman begins getting very uh, pretending to be very intoxicated and kicking everyone out of, out of his house, which he does uh, to, to save them to his credit, I guess. But uh, it is very much a different depiction in how, I don't think that in the Nolan universe, I don't think people like Bruce Wayne very much. Certainly like people outside of the circle that kind of know him well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I suspect that's not true in the the animated universe or the animated series universe, where I'm sure there's a lot more people who see Bruce Wayne more favorably and maybe recognize some of the um, social change that he tries to implement through his status uh, and wealth and um, and means. Maybe uh, shifting gears just a little bit, thinking, you know, I think what's really cool about the character is that it really it takes pretty hard work uh, to empathize with the criminals. Uh, it takes some real humility, I think, I, and I use criminals loosely. I, I villains, um, whatever it maybe is the best word. And so I think that's it's it takes harder work both as a writer of the content I think but also for the character himself it's like I've I think I described a little bit before it would be really easy to just blame Mr. Freeze for for what he's doing and, and just and just punch him out and just put him in Arkham and I think so to take the time to really expand upon the character both in terms of creating the content and in terms of for Batman as a character to recognize, you know, he has this history mm. with his wife who he's trying to save. And, and he maybe is this very caring person who has been pushed uh, in ways by, by this, this corporation, I think that maybe owned mm-hmm. or ran the lab that he worked in. I, I think that's just another example of how it, it, it makes it, it's, it's more interesting. I think content and it makes the character so much more interesting and compelling and, and inspirational. Yeah, I, I really like Randolph how you wrote this. He saw himself and his villains. He was always willing to do the hard work of empathy and to reckon just how closely he and they danced along the edge of the abyss. Because I something that I've observed or that I think is it does seem like something that gets in the way of empathy is maybe going back to that vulnerability that, you know, if people just do the things that I do, then they'll be fine. Or if people are in bad circumstances, that means they must have done bad things or made bad choices. I think it's harder to say, in Batman's case, if I wasn't born to wealth, and he's had a number of hard things happen in his life, obviously, I wouldn't be as powerful as I am, or I wouldn't, whatever gifts that I've had by circumstance have brought me to this place. And instead saying, this could be me and and this person who I have have issues with. So I was thinking, certainly in when we're doing therapy, this is an important sense of humility that I think is required for an authentic connection with clients. But I was wondering if that played into either your personal life or in, in some of your previous work as a lawyer or as a writer. Oh, absolutely. And it, it isn't just the clients for whom you need to demonstrate empathy. And I, I say demonstrate, you know, very purposefully because people will not trust you unless they've you know, have some sense that you are seeing them. And I, you know, you see in that sense that the kids use it these days and nor should they, frankly. But it, it, when you're, for example, meeting the, the client for the first time as a public defender, nine times in 10, it, 
when I was working at uh, at the adult felony section, it, they, they were in custody when I met them for the first time, usually. And if you can't find a way to really connect with somebody and to see the circumstances behind them when they're in a jail cell in an orange jumpsuit, having just been in there for, you know, uh, you know, 12 hours before somebody comes down to see them, they not only will not trust you, but frankly, they should not trust you. And this was uh, something that I think a lot of attorneys have had trouble grappling with is the fact that the client has no natural need to trust you because you are literally just a person who has shown up out of the clear blue sky. Now, the work for some years, then you can go back and you know your record of work, but this to this person, you are a literal stranger. And they would, one of the greatest mistakes you'd see is people just as automatically assuming or feeling as though they are in some way entitled based on prior work that this person hasn't seen to the trust that they haven't actually earned with this person, which is another problem what you get when you just don't see people individually and specifically because this person has literally just met you. But even more than with clients, you if you want to get something done and you don't operate from a position of literal power or authority, then you absolutely either have to choose between exercising empathy or you have to choose failure because you don't get what you want from a judge by browbeating a judge. Uh, judges browbeat back and they browbeat much harder than you can as they sit several feet above the floor in a black robe with the power to have a man haul you off to jail. Just, you cannot lecture these people. You cannot just look them in the eye and tell them what is or what isn't because they, you know, not only they have this literal power, they've been doing this for decades. They're judges. And if you want, for example, to get somebody out of jail, if you want, for example, to get something done, then simply lecturing the judge about the nature of society isn't going to do it either. You've got to reason backwards and you've got to find a way to take the circumstances of a case, of a person, and map it to that judge's preconceptions, that judge's feelings, and that judge's beliefs. Uh, one of the most difficult judges I had ever appeared before, one day I realized watching him very carefully that he was obsessed on a personal level with the idea of people needing father figures in their lives. And how or why he came to that, I couldn't tell you, but I could see this pattern of people getting better outcomes if they had a father figure come in and testify as a character witness, as a sentencing witness. So that's what I did uh, with that judge. And, you know, it's, and that's what you got to do too when you want to, for example, do this work of empathy, but you, you know, are not a literal super ninja and you can't appear in the judge's <laughs> house at night in the windowsill in a, a scary mask and tell him <laughs> to change his ways. Uh, you know, when you are not the ghost of Christmas past, present, or future, and you want to get another human being to do something, you have to empathize with them. And when you don't, what you'll see very often is that people will browbeat their clients into taking a plea, doing whatever, Usually they're right to do that. Usually the defense attorney tells you to take a plea. Usually that's for a good reason. But they still mistake the acquiescence of somebody who's been beaten down by a system of somebody telling them what to do while they're in an orange jumpsuit to the actual agreement of a human being with whom they've reasoned things out, with whom they've talked things through, with, with whom they've actually done the work of speaking to on a one-to-one -one basis as equals. And that has repercussions for that attorney if they work in the same jurisdiction, if their clients come from the same jail. Over time, people will say, well, that guy, you know, he's a, he's a jerk. And it's because he is a jerk. And I think more than anything, that requires, it's not just a matter of empathy either. It's a matter of admitting the same capacity for human fault and failure that you see for the guy in the county jail. Because quite frankly, most people have committed crimes. I mean, I I think not even most people, every person has committed a crime. And what you see in criminal justice is not a matter of who has or has not committed a crime. It's a matter of who has or has not been caught in a matter with consequence. That's such a fantastic point because empathy isn't just 
from a moral standpoint, a nice or good thing to do. It's also really required to be effective. This is certainly true in therapy. And a lot of the things that you said reminded me of, especially doing therapy. I did therapy in grad school for three years at a juvenile correctional facility. And often, understandably, they most of them had been from very abusive households and did not have trust for adults. And it and you can kind of, you know, a person can choose to get defensive about that or or they don't view you as credible because you don't, maybe your background isn't the same as them. And that can often come out because they're adolescents and, and many of them have, are oppositional as a direct challenge to you and who you are and you couldn't possibly help me and you're not trustworthy. And so I think it's natural to feel defensive there but if you do the work of stepping back and saying hey if I came from that household and that's how adults treated me no way would I trust me basically absolutely and also when you're designing an intervention it just can't possibly be effective for their lives if you don't understand the circumstances and like you said what they're not not just what they've acquiesced to or what they're compelled to do because they're incarcerated but what they feel, given the options, motivated in some agency in selecting. I mean, that's definitely makes a difference in, in predicting future behaviors. If people feel they're forced into it, they're unlikely to stick with something like that. But if it's something they feel, you you know, someone who they trust, who's tailored it to your situation, and they view it as benefiting them, well, that's, that's a much better scenario. So a great point about the effectiveness in addition to the niceness aspect of it. I was thinking about some of the same thoughts, reflecting on my background working with like relational and domestic violence perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And, and these were individuals who were all court ordered to come and, and attend this programming. And, and um, it was a little bit challenging for me at first to, to sometimes wrap my mind around or, or grapple with some of the patterns of behaviors that some of these people had engaged in. So I, I really worked and, 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 tried to recognize and, and get to know these people and the circumstances and the backgrounds and, and really did learn a lot about a lot of the, the things that were learned uh, growing up and, and really tough environments and traumatic kind of events. Um, so that was, that was really eye-opening for me and, and it was a nice opportunity for me to start thinking about and, and engaging in the same kind of thing as you're kind of describing a little bit, Katie, with with trying to be empathetic and and trying to take a little bit of a step back and recognize uh, or look at people in a more kind of system-wide kind of way, I think. And, you know, that also, I think you might have got similar reactions to me, and I wonder if you did too, Randolph, but I some of the work I did in that correctional facility was with adolescent um, people who have been convicted of sex offenses, and a lot Mm. of people were just appalled that I would do therapy them. And I talk about if you want to reduce or prevent future sexual abuse, then then treatment for a lot of people can can help with that. And but to do that, you can't just go in there and tell them to to stop. I mean, they're being told that through incarceration and other methods and things like that. So somehow maybe that also hits on that dichotomy of, yes, I don't agree that this behavior is morally acceptable, but I also think that the way to stop it is to really get where they're coming from. Did you come across any of that in your work as uh, a public defender? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I first started, what have I, uh, I want to say, after I've been there for about 
three or four months, I was assigned a child pornography case. And I made the mistake of, you know, being a young whippersnapper lawyer. I'm going to show my value. And it's like, oh, I read all the child pornography case law. You know, I told my boss, I know all of this law, which resulted in me getting all the child pornography cases. Oh, wow. Which was not the smartest course, I don't think. But the, the one thing I noticed both uh, in that office and also later in private practice uh, is that I had never encountered, except for the one individual who was completely not guilty of possessing child pornography, I still don't know how they, they managed to even try to charge that case, but every single person involved in those cases had suffered truly severe, I mean, just, just heartbreakingly severe abuse Sexual, generally the sexual nature as a child, without exception. I don't know if that maps to you know the statistical models of who can does or does not develop pedophilia or how that works. But every single one of those cases involved absolutely heartbreaking levels of childhood sexual abuse, which was documented and highly provable. Generally because they were the victims in those cases, and that a prosecution was had against the perpetrator. And I remember later on in private practice, one of my colleagues was very much you know a rough and tumble country Republican lawyer type you know, very in love with how badass he was in his mind. And he, when he got his first child pornography case, he came to my office, you know, just bitching out at it and just, oh, you know, I have to do this with those, blah, blah, those people, blah, blah, blah. And I have to say by the first month of working that case, and they are cases that involve a great deal of, you know, pretrial sentencing work. Uh, he had come around a hundred percent on the subject because he had spent that time actually having to see this individual and to see the level of trauma that he had suffered early in his life. And, yeah, it is easy, of course, to say, well, you know, this person should just be put out onto a, an ice block and left out to be, you know, ostracized into the Arctic Sea or whichever it may be. Of course, in reality, you know, this is a childish fantasy. Nobody's actually going to do that. So you have a choice to make, which is, you know, you can go the sex offender route of permanent ostracism, and it is permanent ostracism just without the courage of its convictions because you can't live within a country mile of any place where a child has ever been. Or you can try to find a better approach to reintegration with these people. Those are your options. And the only question at that point is whether you want to actually engage with those options in any manner of good faith. And any manner of good faith in that situation means recognizing that too often yesterday's victims become tomorrow's perpetrators when it comes to sexual crimes. That's not you know a moral lesson. That's not uh, something that you buy or sell. That is the simple truth of these statistics. And choosing not to recognize that is something that I see people do as though it were a moral stance, but it's not. It, it's just cowardice, the unwillingness to recognize the three-dimensional character of people who have or who have possessed truly awful material. Absolutely, and so well said that it is, in a way, kind of denying reality for a, a more simple portrait of who's good and who's bad and how much control everyone has over it. It's a law and order SVU morality. Mm -hmm. yeah. But and that, of course, doesn't even speak to excusing offenses or anything else like that or walking away from the need of punishment when somebody really has done something wrong. But to deny the circumstances that give rise to this dysfunction is not, it's not a moral truth. It's, it's just not true. And things which aren't true never become true. That's right. And to truly say, how are we going to do the best we can to reduce these behaviors that most of us agree are immoral, like child pornography, it means saying, were there factors along this person's trajectory that where we could have intervened? And can we intervene now for other people 
to prevent this kind of thing happening. And so it really means getting away from the guy that, oh, every single person who does this is a psychopath and they're, they're, they would have been that way regardless. Even in effectiveness, it means taking a step back and looking more simply uh, or less simply at the at the issue at hand. Well, should we shift a little bit? I uh, to uh, I'm 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 thinking and and kind of reviewing your article in my mind, and I, I want to kind of shift our our conversation back to kind of comparing the Nolan uh, Batman, uh, maybe character and universe uh, against the mm. the the Batman that we get in Batman the animated series, and I I think that this is a I, I mean this could be a whole podcast or or a whole blog series just by itself is just comparing these two uh universes really i think because they're really strikingly different um starting with batman and and kind of going all the way down uh in how the 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 villains are portrayed and and how batman is portrayed and how he interacts with and engages with the villains it's it's really strikingly strikingly different i think that maybe just starting with batman maybe we can start there i think i i liked it in in your article how you you wrote how uh reflecting and reviewing on the movies over time has changed your opinion of them and i caught mm. myself feeling the same way a little bit and kind of reflecting and preparing about the the podcast uh, or for this episode or for this conversation because they they are kind of flashy and and fast-paced movies that are kind of classic action sort of flicks and they're they're easy to sit through and easy to watch but it doesn't take very long with a little bit more critical analysis to start to pick apart some of the elements of the movies and the characters in terms of even just bruce wayne batman even with some of the differences between bruce wayne and batman that we kind of already described where bruce wayne is more of this bumbling billionaire instead of a, a very intentional um kind of philanthropist and um i think that's that's one striking difference for sure. And then with Batman, you see very little of the detective work, I think. I mean, there's just a few little things like there. there's one part where he's looking for a fingerprint on a bullet fragments, I think. And hmm. uh, maybe a little bit with like dye packs that he's putting on on uh, on money. I'm th- Maybe there's a bit more. But in terms of empathy, you don't see a lot of empathy in the Nolan Batman. One example, and it might be the only one, is in... Uh, the Dark Knight Rises, I think, where he kind of gives Catwoman this second chance, and he gives her this USB drive that will s- delete her history <laughs> off of off of the internet. The internet, yeah. yeah. And I think that's uh, I'm I'm racking my brain here a little bit. I don't know if any, if either of you can think of anything, but I think that's one of the few examples where he kind of makes a statement like, "Oh, you know, everyone deserves a second chance, a second chance that he hasn't offered to everyone uh, through the series up until that point." I don't know. Other thoughts on this? I'm reminded there there was one scene in The Dark Knight uh, where, uh, gosh, Aaron Eckhart, Harvey Dent, was beating up a man tied to a chair. Mm. And Bruce Wayne says, you know, Batman, sorry, goes in with his cookie monster growl and is like, this is a paranoid schizophrenic. What do you hope to learn from this man? And it's like, I, that, I, I, that always stuck with me. It's like, well, this is a paranoid schizophrenic. There's no knowledge to be had in this human being. Um, he, he can't tell you anything or not tell you anything. He's he's just a paranoid schizophrenic. So, And I'm pretty sure at that point, Batman left and just left the <laughs> the mentally ill man tied to a chair. Oh, God. I, I think you're right. <laughs> he just like, Harvey Dent, stop beating up this mentally ill man. <laughs> and he just walked away. Uh. But it's just, I mean, the idea, I guess, was that, you know, if you have paranoid schizophrenia, nothing can be learned from you. 
<laughs> there is nothing that you could say or anything because it's just there's nothing there. Yeah. And and I remember too, this is the kind of man the Joker attracts. And it's like, what? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, there's a lot to unpack there in just that sequence, isn't there? Some maybe some inaccurate and harmful use of of pretty specific and uh, mental health language that's really not accurately portrayed as well as used. So yeah, kind of problematic, I think. Um, I do. I I will always love the end of that scene though, where it's just like, "All right, Harvey, stop beating him up. I'll see you later." <laughs> yeah, it's just like, what? Yeah, because it's like if. Especially with schizophrenia. If someone is dealing with schizophrenia, they're already dealing with a lot of stressors and challenges in their life. So then to have movies or media that perpetuate this idea that they're not capable of contributing or talking about things or that they, you know, or that they're violent is another common one. You can see, I mean, that really affects people's impressions of of mental Mm. health when they've had limited experience. So that just... It seems irresponsible, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I'd have to say about five to ten percent of my, my old clients at that public defender's office suffered for some, you know, something in the nebulous universe of schizophrenic diagnoses. And even when they were in a delusional break, they could still be conversed with. And then you would, you know, medicate them. You know, you get them down to the hospital, then they would come back, and then you could have a more full conversation with them. But for, for the, the Batman in that scene, it's just no. Let's just leave this man in the chair. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We've, we've got to go do serious things. I'll see you later. Uh, but I think that goes back to the, the, the character of the universe in which those movies existed was one in which, you know, normal human longitudinal courses of behavior did not exist. Mm-hmm. I and mean, everything took place in a scene and then it was over. So that I'm assuming that paranoid schizophrenic man tied to a chair just ceased to exist when Harvey Dent left the room. And I, I think that's no, nowhere better illustrated than the fact that there was no way for uh, The Dark Knight Returns to end but for the literal destruction of Gotham. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's now an abandoned wasteland, like the end of a hundred years of solitude. There's just there's just no further reason for this city of you know millions of people to exist or to be. That's just Batman left the room. But in the in the animated series, everything had everything continued. I mean, people had inner lives outside of the superhero fantasy. Right. I, I like that idea. I I hadn't thought of it that way in terms of just the simple continuity of the characters that that is sort of interesting isn't it and and it it's another really nice example of how the animated series does such a a superior job of creating a believable and multidimensional and empathetic kind of universe because they take the time to to make these characters exist and have those lives outside of the scenes that they're depicted in and return. So I think that's that's such a great point and really speaks to just the overall quality and the attention and maybe just the level of care of the creators um, and how these characters are, are depicted. And I, I you, you even noted too uh, in your article, and I think this is so great, that in in the films, the, the vi- you write that the villains are murderous, insane, and to the narrative all categorically beyond redemption. And that's certainly true. There There is no space for Batman, who presumably in that universe wouldn't care, or the audience to really think about what led uh, Scarecrow to, to this life. You know, in the animated series, we learn about his experiences with fear mm-hmm. and his work as a professor and, and these experiments. And, and there's this trajectory that led him here. In, in Batman Begins, he, he's a psychologist who is just seemingly very corrupt <laughs> and, and 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 working corrupt within like the court system and 
and as an expert witness and a whole bunch of weird stuff. And he he is a, one of the recurring characters across the films with a very strange arc where in The Dark Knight, he, he's still just being a, a criminal or maybe a drug dealer at that point. And then in Dark Knight Rises, he is, he's, I think, the judge of sort of this wasteland. So, I mean, that's a bizarre arc, and that doesn't really tell us anything about the character or the motivations or or what happened. The The Joker, and I think that maybe this was done intentionally to make the character more mysterious, but there's certainly no backstory or no mm. uh, hint of, of motivation. And I think that's maybe partially the point of the character is he he kind of describes himself as this this dog who's been let off the leash to chase a car and he is very chaotic and he doesn't have motives. So maybe that was more intentional. And then the, the same, I think trend continues with Bane as the concluding character who wants to hold Gotham hostage for several months, really just to blow it up eventually, but not right away, but definitely eventually. Yeah. I don't know, I guess. He's like a contractor just dragging out his performance to, you know, to get like the shed was com- could have been completed two weeks ago, but he's still working on the shed because he's getting an hourly pro rata. Right. That, yep, he certainly had to have been getting some kind of hourly wage from the, the League of Assassins or the League of Shadows. I don't remember what they call it in, in the Nolan universe. So I, I think those are, I mean, they're just not, I mean, they try to add a little dimension to Bane, I guess, when they show this flashback of him saving Talia al Ghul when she was younger and he was in that, that pit. It's not much, though. It's it's pretty weak. Yeah, and it's also bereft of any kind of motivation as to why he would want to save this particular mm-hmm. prisoner because I, there's he, he never shows any tenderness to any other human being at any other moment in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's just for one singular moment and then nothing before or after. There is just no longitudinal course. Nope. Everyone else is, is either getting punched or, or shot, including uh, generally the people who work for him and certainly yes. everyone else who comes in contact with him. And really, that I think that's such a almost, I don't think metaphor is the right word, but it really captures that whole movie in a way where it, it, it the whole movie really just ends with like 400 people just punching each other just just <laughs> i mean just in the light of day in the streets just punching each other out and and uh, i think that really is such a nice summation to the nolan universe and the depth of the characters what is your plan for retaking city hall well it's to run at it and punch <laughs> yeah. people and our plan for defending this you know fortified position is to stand here and punch Naturally. people it's just yeah it, it's like a music video yeah so it it is i don't know it's interesting and in terms of maybe thinking about specific mental health depictions i think that the animated series and i'm kind of just i'm repeating myself now i guess but it it spends a much it goes much more in depth to show the struggling that these people are facing and and how that plays into some of their behaviors, including some of these societal or systematic types of variables that all come together and kind of this psychosocial integration that leads to the the crimes or or the behaviors that they're perpetrating, and and the the mental health pieces, uh, for better or worse, I guess, are limited and and when they're referenced, not not accurately done so i think in the nolan universe i should go back i feel like i haven't watched batman begins in a while but i'm almost sure that that scarecrow dr crane uses some kind of psycho uh jargon uh at some point in the movie maybe when he's describing like falcone i think i'll have to revisit that but 
Yeah, he was, I remember, you know, you, you do public defense work and you get a lot of indigent cases, you know, people with severe mental illness, and you will often have them get evaluated before you can justify sending them to uh, transportation on down to the state hospital or whether or not that's, you know, an element of the defense in the case. And there there will be like one or two people who will do court-appointed work where they go into jails and prisons and talk to people uh, because court-appointed work is not good paying and it is you know not really what most people want to do with their time is to go into jails and prisons and it was so interesting watching that sort of you know the, the person who does that job which is thankless and does not pay very well as some sort of criminal mastermind who's gaming the system to take court appointment money <laughs> to fund his criminal empire as though that were how you know a corrupt psychologist gets ahead <laughs> in the world is to take court appointment money. it's like this is the villain <laughs> it's just but his sinister scheme, as though he were like Lex Luthor, is to talk to people in jail. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, step two is a question mark, and then step three is profit. Naturally. it's It really speaks to how flashy and action-based the movies are, and how shallow the characters and motivations are when you really spend a little time and not much, really just a little time critically kind of thinking about and evaluating the, the motivations and and really what was the goal and what led to this point. What started him <laughs> down this path of, of this being a corrupt psychologist, uh, you know, working in, in the prison system? Yeah, it, it's not, if they were taking like NIH or DOD contracts to develop, you know, the next iteration of, you know, fighter pilot dexedrine, that, you know, that would make at least <laughs> right. some sense. But it's just, you know, you know how, you know, I'll fund my criminal empire that I want for no reason <laughs> is to do social work. <laughs> It's, it's just so it's a weird. tough sell. Yeah, the the legal dialogue too, and you you know when you're an attorney, like when you you know work in a hospital, do psychology, whenever anything else, you get inured over time to screenwriters just playing yeah. extremely fast and loose with the vocabulary of your profession. But I, I I'll never forget that moment in the Dark Knight when uh, Aaron Eckhart, the DA, walks in late to what appears to be a murder <laughs> trial. Just strutting in like he owns the courtroom, doesn't get ripped to shreds by the judge, and then sits down and Maggie Gyllenhaal says, yeah, I, I'm ready for this. I know these briefs backwards. And I'm just like, this is a cross-examination, <laughs> I think. I mean, you've got a witness on the stand. Why are you talking about briefs? But yeah, those movies. That, that scene yeah. also concludes, I think, with a witness pulling a firearm uh, <laughs> on, on yes, Aaron Eckhart's character, which he very casually uh disarms uh the the witness so i i, I never knew yeah, that everybody just yeah. applauded instead of ever you know th you know there's no deputies <laughs> rushing the witness stand it's just like yeah this is what we do <laughs> and he's he's gonna do his cowboy thing and uh yeah it's, it's a very uh yeah. it's a very dramatic profession <laughs> yeah. I mean, any one thing that happened in the course of, I'm not sure if that was a direct or a cross, would have been the most legendary thing that ever happened in the book. And then they all happened at once. It's a real alignment of the stars. <laughs> well, one thing that I thought I'd mention that I, that, that you talked about with regard to superhero movies, that was kind of a broader observation where you said, I see this thread in many current superhero movies where violence and self-assured speeches and mere stagecraft take the place of humanity and empathy. It's not a good look. Those movies made in that cast won't age well, unlike my Batman. And I really like that 
and one of the movies that came to mind to me that maybe is consistent with showing both being kick-ass and being compassionate is Wonder Woman. Because I think that people who tend to show compassion or empathy sometimes are described as too nice or naive or thought of as weak. And so it's really powerful to have examples of Batman or Wonder Woman where you see that those are not two ends of one continuum and you have to fall on either. That you can actually both be compassionate and also really physically strong too. And so I, w I was wondering what you thought, if you thought that meant anything about our culture currently, that those are the kind of, that most superhero movies currently don't have those aspects to them. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, too, because, for example, Wonder Woman, I know, um, the, even that Ant-Man sequel, the, the best part of that movie was when, was what was the, like, three ex-cons starting a security business? That was by far the best part of that movie. Mm -hmm. And Wonder Woman, too, it had the, the I would say the everything but maybe the last 10 minutes of Wonder Woman were pretty great. And then at the very end, and I'm assuming this is studio interference, uh, they had to have a giant CGI fight where Wonder Woman literally fights literal war. You know, Ares, the god of war. But up until then, it, it was a movie more about the both the difficulty and the possibility of a single person making a difference to, you know, a system that was bad, and here we're talking about World War One. you know, through moral clarity by more than anything else. I mean, what brought her to the battlefield where she needed to be was that moral clarity. Exactly, and she struggles with things a little bit because she thinks that everything is being everything bad is being caused by Ares, and then she realizes there are other mm -hmm. things happening, and so you kind of get the sense that in certain ways she is naive, which makes sense because she was pretty secluded and sheltered from even truths about her own history for a long period of time. And figuring that out, kind of having the desire to just dismiss everyone altogether and let go of what she wants to do, and then coming back around on that to kind of a more balanced perspective yeah and they did good work too with the villains and until again that Ares bit but where she was learning that the world war one was not happening because you know an alien force had put its thumb on the scale of human behavior it was happening because a whole bunch of people very self-assured very arrogant very powerful people were making very self-assured very arrogant and very powerful decisions with other people's lives and that i think more than anything that was the insight of that that she gained through that movie. You know, that was the character arc was learning that the vagaries of human behavior were in fact the vagaries of human behavior. Exactly. It can't all be explained by evil alien forces, like you said. Mm. Do you think that that signifies anything about kind of what's marketable currently to people in general, that, that most superhero movies aren't like that right now? Where they have this stronger sense of empathy? I think what it says really is, and I, I go back again to suddenly out of nowhere, you know, this esteemed British character actor uh, who played, you know, the, the British, gosh, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he, he played the, the sort of British Secretary of State analog. Suddenly he's now a CGI supervillain. What I see in that is the influence of the, uh, you know, the DC studio system. You know, these are the, your studio notes. We need to end in a giant CGI cluster because that's what we do. I think the public is ready for these stories. I think they want these stories. And I think that they're frankly bored with the Batman fight the Superman model of, of movie making, where it's just, you know, two angry, maladjusted, middle-aged men with the physique of a 20-year-old punching each other until one of them 
breaks. And I think that a lot of the studio folks really want this and the marketing. And for some reason, they think this is what people want. But I think more than anything, what people actually want, what they identify with. And this is one of the reasons that Wonder Woman, I think, was a a major commercial success, was that they want the empathy of the characters, that they want characters that they can care about and like who do recognizably human things. And they want something that they can believe in. And I, I, for example, I I believe for the most... I don't know if most popular, but certainly, in my opinion, the best superhero movie that came out that last year was uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, yeah. That was fantastic. Which was, which was just such an incredibly humanistic story. I mean, even, even the Kingpin, you know, who was the actual villain. I mean, his motivation was tragic and sad. I, I think you're spot on. I, I think part of it, or I wonder about this at least, is all kind of the trajectory of these of the movies. I'm thinking of even, and you know the first Iron Man movie and how that was kind of a, a smaller scale type of story. And the scale on these movies has just gotten so huge <laughs> that it's like in every movie, it's it's the certainly at least a city or the entire earth is at risk. And we need to defeat some massively powerful being mm-hmm. with generally their infinitely renewable CGI army and uh, and it always has to end in this huge beam of light and and taking on this huge army and that is just not relatable to, for for most people uh, certainly not for me even you know the end of the Dark Knight Rises hundreds of people just standing in the street just punching each other out it's not it's just not that relatable what about a, a smaller more focused, more human, more relatable detective Batman story, you know? You can, Mm -hmm. I mean, as the Batman animated series shows us, you can still have the action, and it can be really cool, and you can still have the punching, but you can make it so that it's relatable, and the characters are interesting and engaging and thoughtful. And so I think that, I think people, I think people are yearning for that. I just think that it's everything has just gotten so big on scale to really utilize all of the technology and the CGI and and to make everything just look so cool that the emphasis needs to shift a little bit maybe back to making mm-hmm. it uh, a, just a human story I think and I think that the Netflix Daredevil series was always pretty good about that because the, the fate of the city was mm-hmm. never at stake in any of any of them and one of the, the best action scenes that I've seen in some years was just a, an incredibly exhausted wounded Daredevil staggering down a hallway beating up like five thugs uh, so tired he could barely lift his arms I mean there was no laser beam no you know storm reaver axe <laughs> or whichever else it, it was just a series of utterly exhausted people about to fall over at any given moment, seeing who would be the last one to collapse. And, and there was, and that was an incredibly dramatic, gripping action sequence. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think that that's exactly kind of the the scope of the stories that I have in mind is kind of the I think Daredevil and and I also watched Punisher as well. I think those are just smaller scoped stories with really interesting characters and and I think your point is so so good that that scene that hallway fight scene is so incredible and it didn't involve a massive CGI project with a, a, an alien army I'm even thinking of the kind of the end battle of Infinity War which is very graphically 
a lot happening, a lot of characters in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But that fight scene in Daredevil is, is just as, or maybe more compelling and certainly more relatable. And more than that, too, people, I've noticed this, they'll use the gigantic laser beam CGI army fight scene as an excuse to ignore the basics of staging an action sequence. For, for example, in that Infinity War mode, I noticed that all of the, the good guys were just standing there in the middle of a field with their ranged weaponry waiting for a bunch of dudes to run to them. And, you know, there there was absolutely no staging going mm-hmm. on there. There is no thought into why they were standing there, no planning about where they would be standing. And the, the scale and the scope was really more than anything used as an excuse to abandon the very basic principles of how you make a scene. You know, just have a bunch of people standing there exchanging fire with each other. But that hallway scene in Daredevil, by contrast, was one of the most impeccably staged single-shot visuals that I've seen on television in years. So I, I think they also, in some in some sense, they use the scale as an excuse to give up on the fundamentals of, of writing. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I clearly love the movie Wonder Woman, so I'll bring that up again. But th- those scenes where they have the Amazons fighting and how choreographed they were, even when they're just training... I have a friend who does staging for theater, and I asked her, you know, I'm like, that looks really cool to me. What's your professional opinion? And she said she thought it was just outstanding because they were clearly thoughtful about every mm-hmm. movement that occurred as they're fighting on the beach and who whose faces they're looking at and what kind of cooperation it takes to to cause certain acts. So I, I agree with you. I think that it, it ends up, if you lean too much on effects or other types of things it it takes away from some of the basic stuff that's actually really cool to see people move like they physically can even though most of us can't physically do that kind of stuff to see them do that and and all the thought that's put into that Mm -hmm. all right well i i think this has been a really interesting i mean at least for me i hope other people enjoy listening to it i've enjoyed this very much (laughs) conversation sure yeah so (laughs) <laughs> um, I think just maybe thinking about to recap it a little bit, I, I would just, if people haven't watched Batman, the animated series, I would encourage that it, it's such a, a great mm-hmm. show. And really, I think something that could serve as a template or a model for way, a way to really in a, uh, empathetic and relatable and human way depict a superhero and the challenges that superheroes might face as well as the supervillains and the challenges that they might face in a way that still has a lot of action and is really uh, a fun thing to to watch and I, I would just I, I think there's just so much to really learn about the the character of Batman from the animated series and and Randolph I really like the way that you think about or are reflected on how that character may be implicitly or, or otherwise guided some of your own or mirror some of your own um, moral compass as an adult. And I think about that for myself too. And just some of the ways that, you know, that character really worked hard to understand people worked hard to do the right thing. If it wasn't easy considered people in a, a very multidimensional kind of approach and, and guided his behaviors, both as Batman and Bruce Wayne ultimately towards helping people, not harming people um or or not mm-hmm. towards and not even towards justice it was really rehabilitation whenever possible so i think it's just so interesting to think about that character and if I, folks haven't been exposed to that i would just encourage encourage folks to dig into that for a really uh, a great a great show and a great character i think that's my concluding thought 
I don't know. Any other? Do you have any closing thoughts at all, Randall, for for folks who might be listening in? I would just uh, say Batman the Animated Series has aged incredibly well. It's fun to watch as an adult, as a teenager, as a kid, to watch with your kids, watch with your grandparents. <laughs> it, it's just a really good show. And and I'm I, I'm glad that you know that we had this opportunity to you know to really delve into what makes it makes it a good show because you know, I think more and more just focusing on things that are good is probably a pretty good way to figure out what is good generally. I totally agree with that, and I appreciate looking at some of the themes of empathy as not just a good thing to do for itself, but also how it's related to effectiveness, and also how one of the obstacles to empathy seems to be. It's difficult to feel uncertain or deal with ambiguity, and in a number of situations, it's worth it to kind of tolerate that discomfort to better understand a situation, and that you can see rewards. It does mean being more vulnerable, so you, you may be hurt or be wrong or whatever else, but sometimes it's it's valuable to do anyway. Very much agreed. All right, I guess with that, thanks so much for being on, Randolph. Thanks for everyone else who has listened in. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed the conversation. Feel free to, to tweet us your thoughts about Batman the Animated Series or, or Empathy, Compassion, Superhero Genre, or anything else, I guess. Just, just tweet at us. So uh, thanks so much, and uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.